Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. This week, a change from our usual programming and the beginning of a series, the Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Hall of Fame. Baldy's done the stats on millions and millions of spreadsheets. There's SQL. There's all kinds of code gone into uh, this algorithm. And Baldy's going to explain the premise behind it after the swish. Coming up soon. Stay tuned. Baldy, mate, over to you first. The Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Hall of Fame, the 100 greatest men's test cricketers of all time. Talk us through where this was born in your uh, in your brain um, and what, what are we going to try and achieve over the course of the next 77 episodes as we discuss <laughs> these uh, 100 cricketers? Well, well, thanks, fellas. Uh, welcome to the Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Hall of Fame and welcome everyone listening to what I'm hoping is a series of a number of episodes, I guess, as we count down the 100 greatest men's test cricketers of all time. Um, Adam, as you said, this was born uh, out of lockdown as we sort of went into our first wave of COVID restrictions here in New Zealand, probably about 15 or 16 months ago now, where I found myself with a little bit of time on my hands after the kids had gone to bed. Um, and I started thinking about, you know, we'd been doing the podcast for about a year or so ourselves, and we'd like interviewed some great guests. We'd interviewed Barry Richards by that time and a number of others. And I thought, you know, we've interviewed some great guests, some great cricketers. And I sort of started this by thinking about Bradman and Tendulkar. And there was a debate, I think, at the pub around who was a better cricketer stats-wise and, and, and legacy-wise. And it sort of the ball started rolling. And before I knew it, I had stats coming out of my ears and I was thinking about averages and, and comparing eras. And I, I started kind of snowballing and I ended up with this list of 100 greatest cricketers of all time. And then I decided that it was way too hard to combine white ball and red ball cricket. Uh, so I started with my favourite form of the game, red ball cricket. And so here we are 15 months later with the 100 greatest, in my view, test cricketers of all time for men. Awesome. And we've got a tablet. We've got a little PowerPoint clicker. Yep. We've got 17 <laughs> screens in front of us and uh, a video camera as well. Um, glare off Raj's polarised glasses as well. Um, but let's kick into it and let's talk about the premise of this. So the, the 100 um, greatest cricketers. What, why are we doing this? You've sort of alluded to it um, a little bit in your preamble, but any other factors? Well, I guess for everybody who listens to and watches cricket and is a fan of the game, Everyone has in their head what it is to be a great cricketer, but is it really possible to define objectively or as close as we can get to objectively what makes a great cricketer? Is it numbers? Is it um, the eye test? Is it a combination of all of those things? So what we set out to achieve was to try and answer the debate of what makes a, a really great test cricketer. And can we put a pin on some of the things that, that really point to greatness? And that leads into the question of how do we compare eras? So, you know, test cricket goes back almost 150 years now, or even maybe even a little bit more than that from 1877 through to 2021, well over 2,000 test matches played. How can we compare someone who played in that first 25 years of cricket to someone who played in the last 25 years? And that's a really difficult question to answer, but we're going to try and unpack some of that. And we're going to do some of that with the eye test for players that we've watched and we have feelings and emotions about. But the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to use numbers. And so what we're going to try and achieve and what I tried to set out to achieve is to understand if there are better metrics than number of wickets or batting average that are consistent across eras of test cricket that help us identify the greatness of a player. And it, can we do better than just number of runs, number of wickets, batting average, bowling average? And, and I can tell the people, uh, I've had a few conversations with Baldy. Yeah, he has certainly put in the hours of, and yeah, the, the millions of spreadsheets, that was that was not a joke. We're going to see some statistics over the next uh, 77 episodes, as Binksy explains. So just before you kick on with the other points, let's talk a little bit about, we talked about our roles in this um Great debate. So I'm going to start with you, Lippy. How are you going to sort of balance what, you know, if you were asked this question without all the preparation that we've gone into over the course of the last few weeks discussing um, this show, what? how would you define what's going to make a great test cricketer for you? And I'm going to come round the table after that as well. So Universe Boss, get ready. Yeah, well, I think for me, it, it's certainly not, it wouldn't have been this stats heavy. I, I know that for sure. I, I think a lot of it would have come on, on feel and certainly... Um, it, the, the hardest thing for me would have been the errors thing because, and I've had a few chats with Bully, you know, off off air around how do we how do we evaluate those guys and how do we kind of figure out, 
Yeah, how do you, you know, someone that played in the 1900s when there were not many teams playing, when there were completely different conditions, how does that even work? And I, I think my skew would, would certainly be towards the, the more current players just because I love being able to see them. I think whenever we've done uh, any of our uh, Rushmore debates and we've always, you know, we've, we've ha- we want to consider the older players, but I've always tried to go on YouTube and, and get as much footage as I can. So any eye test... I think it would go eye test for me, and also for the players that haven't that I haven't seen, and it's impossible to see. It's about legacy and and players that I've heard of, you know, because I think those guys that you've definitely heard of and and you know have made an impact in cricket, they 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 have some prestige in my mind, and and they kind of deserve to be there on that level. Raj, I come to you next. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Lippy's covered a few of my points there, and that. For me, it's going to be a lot about the eye test. It's people that I've seen uh, you know, in the flesh or on TV and highlights. That's sort of where I'm going to skew, unfortunately, and I know that bias will be there. Uh, I will look at the stats. I've got a great one here, Jeet Raval versus Shakib Al-Hassan. That's a bowling average. Um, so that, that should come out later on. Uh, but, but yeah, just things like that. And, I, and I, I do know that that skew will be there. But for me, it's going to be a little bit of mix of, of that, that statistical statistical significance as well as the, um, the legacy, as Stu mentioned. Banksy, you've already nailed your colours to the mask pretty early on here by declaring that you're going to pay no attention to numbers whatsoever. So we know that that's not quite true. But but on a serious note, where does the balance of numbers versus the eye test sit for you? Yeah, I, I, you've got to obviously look at the numbers. And I think, we, you know, I jokingly said that to Raj on the way up, but there's no way that Jack's Callis a better all-rounder than Ian Botham because Ian Botham could drink far better and took more important wickets. Um, but you look without kind of being ridiculous about it, for me, I was lucky enough to grow up watching Test cricket um, in what I thought was a pre- you know a pretty stellar era, and um, the UK and, and England was a good place to watch a lot of cricket. We got Sky Sports around ninety one, ninety two, so got to see a lot of overseas cricket. I think to Lippy's point around the eye test, the bit for me is that. I've not seen enough of Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Zimbabwe. Um, I saw a lot growing up of Australia, of West Indies, uh, and obviously England. For me, I think the thing that's going to define that greatness is those moments in games that were turned by a fantastic performance. And um, I'll go back to um, both of them in the 81 Ashes, which I've seen ad infinitum in every rain break of every English summer that you've ever seen. Um, I look at Flintoffs over to Ricky Ponton in that 2005 Ashes. Um, and then you look at some of the spells that the likes of a Shane Warne bowled in Australia um, or a bludgeoning hundred from someone like Hayden. Those are the things that I think define that greatness. It was that ability. Brian Lara, another example, someone that knew when to turn it on in a game mm. um, and probably one of your cricketing heroes, Steve War, as well. As soon as you wound him up, all of a sudden that switched him on and he was in the game. And those are the things that define great cricketers for me. It's probably a good time to mention to the listeners that uh, the three of us, aside from Baldy, haven't actually... I've been reading a few of Baldy's write-ups because of uh, just doing a bit of editing work and, and getting another set of eyes on them. But we haven't actually really... We haven't done any of the stats. We, we are going to be reacting to what Baldy live. says live and, and pretty much you know, just figuring out where we rank each player... You know, as you would be hopefully listening along. So, yeah. and yeah. what about you, Bordy? Where, where are you going to sit on this? Because you've done the numbers. You got yeah. to believe in them because you've done them. Yeah, I have to believe in them because I've done them. And I think there are better metrics than than just number of wickets and batting average and bowling average that represent not only a player's ability to dominate his opposition, um, which is one of the things that I looked for, is how often and how much can an can a, an individual player dominate his opposition and how does that come out in numbers and the other thing that we wanted to try and achieve is can we find a number or a metric that is consistent or relatively consistent across eras that tells us that a guy who did well in 1920 and a guy who did well in 2020 are represented by some of the same numbers and of course we have to consider things like you know, the number of tests played, what the opposition is, what the conditions are, and all sorts of other factors that blend into those numbers. So numbers aren't purely objective, but we'll get to that. Bully, I'll just jump in. You, you've, uh, you've talked about it a little bit, but longevity and, and all these numbers, 
I think that's probably a good point you were saying to me before. You know, we've, we're saying guys this whole time. It's it's men's cricket. We are focusing on men's cricket. Yep. Do you want to explain a little bit why we have done that and, and just that, yeah, we don't feel that it's we can really talk to, to women's cricket and a few other reasons as well? Yeah, well, I mean, we can't talk to it yet because I think, you know, there's 2,000-plus test matches that have been played by, by men's test cricket sides over a period of 150 years. I, I didn't know this until I started looking into it, but the first women's test match was in 1934, and there have been 141 test cricket, uh, tests played in almost that 90-year period since. And so there's not a lot of women's test cricket that's played. Over the last 10 or so years, there have only been 11 or 12 tests played mm. by women cricketers. At the moment, the balance of women's cricket is... T20s plus ODIs plus tests. So if we were going to look at the greatness of women cricketers the world over and throughout time, a much better um, way of looking at that would be to combine tests and ODIs and T20s all together and look at and look at that. Because if you didn't, I mean, off the top of your heads, how many women do you think in the history of test cricket average more than 45? Just off the top of your heads. Five. Uh, I don't know, 50? Raj? Two. The answer is 47. Wow. 47 women in the history of Test cricket average over 45. How many of those do you think have played more than 10 Test innings of that 47? Yeah, I think we're getting to single figures now. Five. There's 12, right? So there's only 12 women who average over 45 in the history of Test cricket that have played more than 10 innings. Why? Because they don't play enough Test cricket. So what we want to do with women's cricket eventually when I can find enough time <laughs> in my busy work life and family and stuff to, to look at it and give it the cre- the credit and the depth of analysis that it deserves is to look at women's cricket as a whole. And that should stand as tests plus ODIs plus T20s because, after all, that's how the Ashes and, and big series are competed yeah, yeah. for, a combination of those things. You mentioned longevity versus peak performance, Stu, and that's one of the things that I had coming into this are quite clear bias towards and that was actually towards peaks versus longevity but the more I did the analysis and the more I looked at some of these players the more actually longevity and and big numbers started to balance out that little balance for you guys when you think about a player who's displayed tremendous longevity in the game someone like maybe maybe Graham Gooch um, from your perspective, Adam, or a guy maybe like Hadley uh, from a New Zealand point of view, maybe Steve Waugh from an Australian point of view how do those guys for you balance out against a peak performer like Barry Richards or someone who played not very many tests but but achieved a, a tremendous level of excellence? Um, and well, I'm sure the V word's going to come up at some point in this debate, so we may as well get it out of the way now. How does a guy like Adam Voges or Barry Richards, who peaked very suddenly in test cricket but didn't play a lot of tests, compare against someone like Graham Gooch, who has a, maybe a more modest record but has a lot of big gaudy counting stats yeah look I guess what I'd use Alistair Cook probably as my example on that because he you know played 160 test matches um, scored I think over 12,000 test runs and nobody would probably describe him as a great of the game Um, but when you actually look at that record the longevity that it went through the fact that he was never dropped in, in that period of time um, you know, the fact that, you know, he went out in his last test match with 100, having scored 100 in his first test as well. Um, you know, that just shows that that length of career, and the guy's still only like 33, 34, like he's still playing county cricket. When you then compare to, to some of those guys that um, did carry on till they're 40, imagine what those numbers would have looked like if he could have maintained that um, that hunger over that period of time. So for me, I don't think we often pay enough credit to those guys who've done it over a long, long period of time. Um, Hadley's an interesting one because his stats are not only, you know, unreal, um, but he's also got that longevity as well. So, that you know, there's a handful of players who've got both of those mm. things covered. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, the, the mere mortals, the Steve Wards, that you know, the Alistair Cooks, um, someone like a Courtney Walsh who, you know, at the end of his career of what was it, 519 wickets had the keeper stood up. You know, that, that you know, that's got to be given credit at some mm. point in this debate. Right. Uh, yeah, for, for me, it's definitely the longevity. People who have, 
a lot of these people have actually been at their peak for a long period of that career as well. You're looking at guys like Tendulkar, who, who came onto the scene in, in 1989, and then he was the, still the first person to score a double hundred in the one-day game 20 years later, mm. 21 years later. Those sorts of stats, and you, you can go through them all. Wazi Makram, who played over 400 one-day matches, and he was he was good for that whole time. I think that, that the longevity, uh, for me, is, is, is a much better indicator than that peak performance. Stubble? Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think when, you know, obviously we've seen the list of 100, I, th- I think that longevity piece probably becomes more more of a question uh, when we get a bit, f- when we're further down the list. I think the guys that you guys are mentioning, that that longevity, when they have longevity and they have all that other stuff, it obviously, like, it, it just, you see how great they were. Mm. And, and if they can continue to think that an amazing career for, for 15 years, that that's why they're you know they're going to be in the top ten, top twenty kind of player range of all time. I think the interesting thing for me, Baldy, is probably and and it's probably a good time for you to touch on where what your criteria has been because I know that some players have been ruled out essentially from making this list. You know, you mentioned Barry Richards. Yep. Obviously, he's got an amazing first class record. Mm-hmm. But we played four tests now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, played four tests, averages. Over 60, 65 or something, 68. But, you know, we, I I think we we have decided that we're not going to take first class cricket into consideration. It's only going to be their test cricket performance. And whether that's, you know, 20 tests or they can still have a case if Mm. it it is. But but where are your cutoff points in terms of the actual numbers? Yeah, great question, Stuart. So if we have a look at the structure of our, our Hall of Fame, what we've got is we've got only got room for 100 cricketers. So that's actually a smaller number than you think. It's nine teams of cricketers, and that's not very many. We've split it into five tiers to kind of give everyone kind of a bit of a pyramid-like structure, and I borrowed heavily from um, the great basketball podcaster Bill Simmons who created a a pyramid for for his Hall of Fame of basketball. So we're going to have five tiers, and we'll, we'll get into them a little bit. We talked about the eras. We talked about the metrics. Ultimately, it comes down to a discussion and a verdict that we, well, I make a case for each player and and where I think they sit in the Hall of Fame. In order to be part of that discussion, we have to have some kind of metric or some kind of um, threshold that you have to cross in terms of runs and wickets, ultimately, as a batter or a bowler, to be able to get into that discussion. Where I landed was about 125 test wickets at an average of about 25 or better-ish, and that gave me about 130 bowlers that met that criteria for consideration. And we'll get to some notable omissions from that, and people didn't quite make the cut who still have tremendous records when we get to that in a little bit. And as far as batting was concerned, I reached a threshold of about 2,000 test runs at an average of about 35. That was my kind of threshold and that's those figures are actually kind of roughly 20 percent of the best cricketers of all time so 2000s roughly 20 percent well it's not really it's a lot less than 20 percent it's about 15 percent of sessions top mark of 15,900 test runs or whatever it is so that's the kind of threshold to get in there the averages give us about 220 batters to think about or give me 220 batters to think about and about 100 bowlers to whittle down to about 45 batters, about 45 bowlers, eight or nine all-rounders and eight or nine wicketkeepers, give or take, in the in the Hall of Fame. So we managed to get to 100 test cricketers across those four eras, not evenly spread, but across those four eras, there's representation of all four eras. Some players cross eras. Um, not many players cross countries, but just about every test country other than Afghanistan and Ireland, is either in the conversation um, or has at least one member in the Hall of Fame. So there's a relative balance there of, of those nations being represented. Bangladesh, probably unlucky to miss out, but we'll, talk, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, Afghanistan and Ireland have only been around for three years, so very difficult to make a case for one of those guys. Um, if we have a look at the tiers, we start at the top with the Immortals. There's only four of them, and in the spirit of our Mount Rushmore conversation, there's only ever going to be four Immortals in my top order Test Cricket Hall of Fame. Then there's the 11. These are the our, our Test Cricket Hall of Fame. Well, our Test Cricket Hall of Fame. I, I, get so, I got so used to calling it our that Stuart told me to call it my at least once. Um, but we'll call it the Top Order Podcast Test Cricket Hall of Fame. There'll only ever be four immortals. So in order for someone to jump in, someone else is going to have to dip out in the same way that if a player emerges over the next five or six years and, and makes a case for the Hall of Fame, someone else is going to have to drop out. 
Then we have the 11, the 11 next best test cricketers. And these are the 11 greatest test cricketers of all time, not in that immortals category. Uh, then I've gone kind of business speak and we've got the leadership group and uh, I'm quite happy for listeners to email us in and tweet us in better names for the tiers three, four and five. But we've got the leadership group. Uh, then we've got the squad of 25 players and then we've got the club at the bottom that's got 35 players. Great in sponsorship from... opportunity there, Baldy. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone who naming wants right. naming right sponsor for the club. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking Canadian club, perhaps, um, that kind of thing. Uh so we've got those five tiers. Um, and I guess it comes back to that question. What does it mean to be great? We've kind of touched on this, but I divide it into two kind of sets of things. I, I had objective and subjective here when I was putting this um, presentation together for you guys, but that's not quite true because numbers aren't objective all the time. Um, and as we'll get into the discussion, there are numbers that are completely subjective depending on how you look at them. Uh, but we're going to go with a few numbers, runs, wickets, hundreds, fifers, pretty classic cricket numbers. Batting and bowling averages and strike rates will appear there. And then we're going to get into some more advanced numbers. So we're going to have a look at um, how often those things happened. How many times did a player score 100 per 100 innings, for instance, as a way of trying to balance out hundreds can be accrued over time if you play a lot of tests. But a truly dominant player will score more hundreds per 100 innings no matter how many tests they play in theory. Um, we're going to look at peak performance. So every time we look at a player in our top 100, we're going to have a look at their best three series that they played and how high a peak did they scale as part of that peak performance. Um, we're going to look at longevity, no doubt about it. Uh, so in order to be truly great, you have to have a long career um, and that and that helps. Um, but there are some test cricketers in this list that haven't played as many tests as others. And then we're going to have a look at the other number, which is average above replacement player. So this is Jared Kimber's um, suggestion from a couple of weeks ago on the podcast when he said, how many runs above average did a player score? Actually, a lot harder to come up with that stat than you might think. Um, so we're going to delve into what that means. In, in your various iterations of this, uh, how, how, many, how much change has there been since you started this till now? Heaps, heaps, heaps and heaps and heaps. Um, I also created my own stat, which is super nerdy, and the um, I won't explain it here on the podcast, but if you are interested in stats and you want to jump on our website, get onto the toporderpodcast.com. The preamble write-up has an explanation of how I come up with this number called stat rank. And effectively, it is a score based on your on your on the comparison of you as a player against all of the other possible players who could make the top one hundred in terms of runs scored, uh, hundreds and then average and hundreds per um, hundred innings. So it's a, a combination of the n counting stats, the numbers, and the rate at which you accumulate those numbers for the amount of tests you played. So there is a balance there between longevity and, and dominance over other players. And the way that I did that changed over time. Even the calculation of that average above replacement player changed over time because just looking at that pure number of runs scored by all the other cricketers who played at the same time of you, as you – is a skewed stat. You know, if you have a look at people who played in Bradman's era, the replacement player average goes up by five points just because Bradman was there. Take him out, just him, and the average above replacement player goes down five points. In the 80s and 90s, the average above replacement player goes down three or four points if you include all of the players from Zimbabwe and Bangladesh and all those other countries whose introduction to test cricket meant that we had a whole bunch of players who were averaging under 30 still playing test cricket for a long period of time, for 10 or 12 years or so. So those kinds of things, you kind of have to look past the raw numbers if you want to get an understanding of of the impact of, of what those numbers mean. And, and yes, they, they did change a bit. Let's have a look at some of the qualitative stuff. Uh, the eye test, very hard to watch footage of players pre-1975 unless you find grainy YouTube, and I've found some, but not a lot. Um, so it's very hard. And, and you found some grainy cricketing YouTube as well. Yeah, I found I found lots of grainy YouTube, lots of grainy cricketing YouTube. It's hard to find the eye test for players in the pre-war era, for instance. Very, very difficult. So you kind of have to read about what others have said about watching players, which again is hard uh, not to prejudice your view. We're going to look at leadership and we're going to look at winning, um, particularly when we get into look at captains. Captains, for me they get a bit of a bump because they're able to demonstrate leadership and leadership can show people's greatness. Um, 
an impact on the way the game is played. So certain players obviously have changed the way we play test cricket and they get a bit of a bump as well. And some players have changed the way that test cricket is played for the worse. They've, they've negatively impacted test cricket and that affects them as well. And so does their persona on and off the field. Unfortunately, greatness is not just about your performances with the bat and the ball. It's about how you carry yourself on and off the field and the legacy that you leave in the game of test cricket. Um, and that could be as a commentator, that could be as a pundit, that could be as a, a persona on the field that is unlikable or, or has co or courts controversy or whatever. So those are the things that I think about when I think about greatness. For you guys, of those things, what stands out to you as a metric of greatness that you instantly identify with? Or is there another one that I've missed? I can't think of any that you've missed. I, I think um, to, to Binksy's point earlier, I, I, I really agree that, you know, we've all talked about the eye tests. You know, I think the three of us are, are certainly going to skew towards the eye tests naturally, I, I think. And I think that's going to be the, the way for everyone, right? I mean, you know, when, when we're going to get to some notable emissions in, in a minute, the notable emissions for me, a, lo a lot of them are New Zealand based, right? Because those are the, the people that I've grown up listening about listening to stories about for the historic people and you know watching as well now um, but I think winning is, is a big factor for me you know like if you've demonstrated that you can perform and actually contribute to something that wins a game Binksy made a point before about you know those big moments that someone steps up and wins you games I think that bumps you up a few categories for me but you then also get, I guess, the, the counterpoint to that. Someone like Andy Flower, who didn't play in a lot of winning test matches, if he'd have been um, playing for Australia, um, you know, would his average have been better? Would it have been worse? Mm. But certainly, you know, had to carry the weight of his nation on his shoulders. I think he averaged something like 55 with the bat. Kept wicket when he probably wouldn't have kept wicket if there'd have been someone else that could have done it. But he was there to do that to balance the side. So you've got some of those guys... Um, you know, in some of those sides, and Sri Lanka would be another good example of that. You know, didn't win a massive amount of cricket early in their um, early in their tenure. You know, he's Ranatunga there. Um, you know, there's, there's some is you know, Aravinda de Silva there, for example, as we get through. Um, but I guess a little bit like the infomercial, where you're just waiting to find out the price. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna kick into some notable emissions after we, we've heard from Raj. Yeah, let's hear from Raj around what 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 do you what do you think what stands out for you Raj be dying for a swish as well surely yeah. <laughs> no I, I actually I didn't think much about the winning statistic that, that Stu mentioned I think that actually makes a lot of sense when we're talking about people who transcend the game it's not just about hundreds and five fizz you look at your basketball example Michael Jordan gets a massive leap up in the greatest player of all time because of how his winning percentage he, he won he won championships versus someone like LeBron maybe who hasn't um, so I think that's a really good metric I didn't actually think about it uh, there Good job. I guess, how do we compare eras? We're going to come back to this as we get through each player, but I just want to give the listeners a, a quick rundown of the four eras that we're going to talk about when we talk about Test Cricket. We won't get into too much of the detail because there's so much to unpack across these eras, but just to highlight them for you guys, we start with the pre-war era, and I mean by that before 1945. So it's the longest era that we've got to talk about. 1877 to 1945 is quite a period of time. And in that, the game changed tremendously. So we went from uncovered pitches, manual, non, I mean, non-electric lawnmowers. I mean, we forget <laughs> that the electric lawnmower didn't really come about until the late 1800s, early 1900s. So there's a period of test cricket that was played with manual lawnmowers, both in terms of rolling and cutting the wicket and the outfield, right? So not only have we got uncovered pitches, but some pitches were played on matting, particularly in the subcontinent. And those, those pitches were rolled out on choir mats at the beginning of play and teams of people would stretch the matting out until it was, you know, until it was taut when pegged into the ground. And that's how we played test cricket in, in that pre-1945 era. It's a good point you make about the outfields as well because I hadn't even thought about that. I've been thinking about pitches and things. But obviously if the outfield is longer... It's going and, to be trickier. And, and more uneven. Trickier to score runs, isn't Yeah. It? Um, no protective gear or very little in terms of protective gear, obviously, pre-1945. Um, we had lots of emerging teams. So New Zealand, India, the West Indies, South Africa, Australia and England all introduced pre-1945. Um, some of those teams obviously played more than others. And, of course, the impact of war um, is, a, is a tremendous um, impact on some of the careers of test cricketers because not only did we have a period of five and six years where there was no test cricket, but we lost um, 
dozens of test cricketers and hundreds of first-class cricketers um, to both of those wars. So, you know, the careers of players like um, Hedley Verity and, and a few others come to mind, greatly impacted by the period in which that war fell. And, of course, there are, there are many, many promising test cricketers that lost their lives as well. Um, so that's pre-1945, our pre-war period. Uh, post-war is sort of 1945 to 1976, we started to get more and more teams. Pakistan was introduced in that era. The other teams like India and the West Indies and New Zealand played more and more test cricket in that era. In that era, we got better pitches. We started covering pitches. Um, we even changed the the no ball rule from the back foot no ball rule to the front foot no ball rule in that era. So even post war, there was a lot of change in terms of the way that cricket was played. So our post war era covers 1945 to 1976. Then we have World Series cricket and and the helmet era. It could be called the World Series cricket era, but I called it the helmet era because protective equipment alongside World Series cricket changed almost overnight the way that cricket was played. Um, how, how? Do you want to quickly so tell us that? I, so I think World Series cricket did a number of things in, in terms of that piece in, in and of itself. It introduced professionalism to cricket for the first time. So players were not for the first time, but pretty much for the first time, able to earn a decent living just by playing cricket um, and were able to make decent money by playing cricket. And in so doing, we introduced television, we introduced coloured clothes, we introduced night cricket, white ball cricket, all of these things that turned cricket into an entertainment product. So not only did it change the professional outlook of players, but it also changed the way they thought about their own game in that they are now seen as being entertainers, not just people who are playing cricket because they loved it and because of it. it was almost like a pastime, a professional pastime, but a pastime nonetheless. So the mindset changed as well as the professionalism. And of course, the introduction of one-day cricket also changed how test cricket was played as well. Yeah. I heard a cracking story actually about the introduction of helmets in World Series cricket. Dennis Amos, who was an England opening batsman, went and got a, basically a motorcycle helmet um, and in the first game that he wore, um, you know, he went out to bat. He said he was fogging up a little bit with the uh, with the visor and he got run out because they hadn't thought that you couldn't hear inside this motorcycle helmet. <laughs> so after the first game, he went to the guy that had made this helmet for him who just drilled some ear holes in. <laughs> and they said, well, after that, we didn't get run out again because we could hear the calls. Because you'd hear the calls. But there, there was so much that changed as yeah. part of that World Series cricket era. For me, helmets is a, is a definitive one because it meant that actually tail-end batsmen didn't have to genuinely fear for their life of being hit in the head. You know, you didn't have very many Rick McCosker-type moments in the period of 1977 up to, unfortunately, the Phil Hughes incident uh, in the 2000s. So that period of 1977 to 2004, again, a general increase in professionalism. So across that era, towards the end of it, hyper-professional cricketers looking after their bodies, looking after their... Um, health and well-being, their diet, their nutrition, their training, um, fielding standards increased tremendously in that era. So again, in 1977 to 2004, that increase in professionalism is, is the defining moment. The last era I call the Big Bat era because from 2005 onwards, one, bat has started to dominate ball in terms of not only the size of the bat but their construction and their ability to hit the ball. I was thinking about it today. I reckon it's 50% more powerful a bat now than it was 30 years ago. I have no stats to back that up, unfortunately. It's the one stat that I don't have. But in my mind, bats are significantly better and more powerful now well, than they ever have been. Well, right? I, I mean, guys that have listened to the Ken Rutherford interview that we did, that I wasn't I wasn't joking. when I, I said to him, because I, I love this 93-94 uh, World Series cricket that they played in. And, yeah, honestly, there was, there was so many shots that they would play that, you know, some would have a massive swing and it would just balloon out to cover. Whereas these days, it flies off the edge and goes for six. Yeah. It goes to third man for six. So not only do big bats influence cricket in this era, but also T20 cricket has had a massive impact on, on test cricket as well, both in terms of a team's ability to attack high targets in the fourth innings, as well as, you know, when bat starts to not dominate ball, when ball gets a fair run, batsmen are less equipped now, in the most part, to deal with friendly bowling conditions. And we see that a lot in terms of the number of results nowadays inside four yeah. days, don't we? That's well, my view. And boundaries in as well with the safety. So, you know, you used to have the the ground used to be the ground and, and you used to be able to take a catch leaning on the advertising board. Mm. Now, most grounds, you've got at least four or five metres in just for that um, Toblerone. 
<laughs> so, so with these errors, uh, errors that we're in, have you applied the metrics differently for these errors, or is it just a way to categorize? Uh, it is both. So for the most part, the 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 metrics are consistent. I did provide for a little bit of leniency pre-war because there are certain cricketers who are without doubt legends of the game and household names in the pre-war era that just didn't play enough test matches to um, to reach those thresholds of 2,000 runs and 125 or 150 wickets. And to give a great example, WG Grace only scored 1,000 test runs, right? He scored another 44,000 first-class runs that I have to completely disregard in terms of his test cricket stats. But he has, he has such a legacy and a, such a profound impact on not just cricket, but the professionalism of cricket. I mean, we del- we'll delve into his story when we get to him, but he has such a profound he's effect. In, he's in the 100, is he? I'll give, I'll, first spoiler, WG Grace is in the 100. Um, he has such a profound impact on the professionalism of cricket that no one really tells the story of, that we have to unpack that a little bit. Um, so pre-1945, there is a little bit of leeway, probably not enough, I think, when we get to the notable emissions, and let's sort of get into that now. Um here are some notable omissions from this list. Guys that aren't in the top 100, that you look at those household names and you think, oh, actually, there's some really good cricketers in that list, right? And I'm sure you guys have brought to the party a whole bunch more besides. The guys in bold, Mark War, Nathan Lyon and Shakib El Hassan, are my benchmark players. Didn't make the list, but form kind of a benchmark for me of, of borderline greatness that we want to cross to get into that top 100. You guys have brought names as well to, to kind of put me on the spot. Uh, Stu, you've got a bunch of them there written down on a piece of paper. Anyone that sort of you want to pluck out from the bonfire and, and throw at me? Yeah, well, look, the, I, I sort of defined my emissions in a few different areas as well. And I, and I the, sort of the, the one, I guess, that, that I'm purely just looking at stats is, is the earlier eras. And, and um, I know we'll get to when we talk about Shakib, you'll talk about your your plus minus for for all rounders. And when we do that, there's someone who Jared Kimber has, has written about recently, Aubrey Faulkner, who has a a plus minus of, of I think thirteen and a half. His batting average is forty, bowling average is twenty six and a half. So you know when you when you think okay, well he yeah he's that when you we're going to see it in the the Shakib win, that that is a huge stat. And when you actually look at the numbers. There's not many people that that have such a positive plus minus, so he's certainly one. But he does fall short a little bit on your on your statistics. I only played 25 matches. The other massive one that stood out to me is is George Loman. I mean, you know, he only played 18 tests in the you know in the late late 1800s and, and early 1900s. I think around that era, he's got 112 wickets and 18 tests at seven at, at 10.75 strike rate of 34. It ranks him number one in both of those two categories. What I think I know you have these stats for a reason, but surely number one in strike rate and average of all time, you couldn't make any leniency for him. You know, I really wanted to. I really, really wanted to, but if I did, I would have opened up Pandora's box to 20 or 30 other cricketers who would have made not similar claims, but claims along those lines to get into that. And I had to draw the line somewhere, unfortunately. Guys like Aubrey Faulkner, Ranjit Shinji, the batsman in that era, um, there were a couple of others as well. Um, uh, an English guy whose name escapes me, he was a batter. I've got, um, I've got down Frank Shrewsbury. Tyson, Frederick Spop- Spoppeth. You know Dudley Norse. There's, you know, when you do look at those stats and you go back and and you know you start using uh, Crick Info stats and you you type in average and there's just so many players that yeah all all of those errors are just littered yep. with amazing averages. And, and you have to take them in in some kind of perspective because between 1890 and 1940, the top batting average in Test cricket climbed 30 points almost or thereabouts. Right. So when Grace retired, the top average ish, give or take, was about 35. Before the war, the top average in test cricket was in the 60s, and there were multiple players in the 60s, and Bradman was again above that. So the the bowling averages were much better in that era because the conditions were different and because ball-dominated bat uh, in those kind of eras. So for guys like Barnes and for guys like Lohman, 
their stats compare very favourably as a bowler now because of the way that the ball dominated the bat. And there weren't as many quality bats in that era, um, which is why Grace's average of 32 stands out a little bit. Even though it's only 32, it stands out because it's that much better than, than that era. Faulkner and, and Loman, though, very unlucky to miss out. One of you guys want to come in with some more current players? Anyone you guys thought... Was should you know? I, I guess we when we're talking about eye test as well. I I tried to think of you know who who actually do I think is is missing, and it's of, it's always sort of hard to think about who's missing uh, when you see a list of a hundred people. All you can do is think about those hundred people. Mm. But I you know, and on the flip side, I tried to think actually who do I not think is is really one of the best players of all time. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised to see Greenwich on that list as someone that's missed out. You kind of. You know, you, you talk about Greenwich and Haynes, like you talk about fish and chips when you talk about um, two names that go together. The, the one thing that that list, though, has reinforced to me is that conversation around longevity and um, impact or peak performance. Someone like Andrew Flintoff, who had, in fairness, he was a good test cricketer and he had one great series in 2005. Um, and you kind of look at that and you can make that argument for a few of the other guys mm. um, on that list. I think um, Chiminda Vass probably pretty unlucky as well from a longevity perspective and playing on some you know pitches that resemble roll snot in Sri Lanka, um, you know which weren't really conducive and, and you know he had a, a little bit of an art. But look, I'm sure as we go through the list, we're going to talk um, dispassionately and passionately about a bunch of people that we um, you know could make a, could make a case for. Yeah, for me, there's there's guys in there who actually have decent numbers in terms of of counting wise. Lyons got 400 wickets. Habijan probably, I think he's got over 400 wickets. Yeah, Lance Gibbs uh, was the leading Test cricket. Like he held the world record for most yeah. wickets for a long, long time. And, and I know Daniel Vittori doesn't stack up in terms of numbers, but as a cricketer in that time and for New Zealand, he was massive mm. uh, in, in all facets of the game, including management. And, and you know, he you drove got, the bus too at one point, <laughs> exactly. I think, and wore, and wore the mascot outfit. What, I'm pretty sure as well. What about you guys, Martin Crow on that list? How, how does that make you feel? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, Martin Crow's the massive omission to me. I, I really feel like he, certainly from a New Zealand perspective. He's he's right up there. I know that the stats, the forty five average, and it, it it doesn't quite stack up. You know, when I know we're you know you we're ruling first class stats out, but his first class record is the average is fifty six with the bat, I think, and I just think his impact for New Zealand cricket and. We'll probably end up talking quite a bit. Uh, Binksy mentioned it before about Zimbabwe, and and then you know how much do your teammates impact your performance? And I think New Zealand was not a good cricket nation really for the majority of Crow's career. And there, there were periods in the eighties there when we were when we were good, and when Crow was starting off, and when we had uh, Richard Hadley obviously in his prime, and a number of other good cricketers. And you know he contributed to winning. And I think I saw a stat when I was trying to build my case for Crow that, you know, he averages 55 in New Zealand's 16 wins across that, that time. And, mm. you know, you could see that when he contributed, we won. And, and yeah, I just think he certainly, you know, I don't want to spoil some of the, the names that are in that list, but I feel like he is a, a massive omission. Is there something that stood out to you why you didn't put him in? Not, not particularly with Martin Crow, and not particularly with a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys were really unlucky to miss out on the list, but there were only 100 names, and I couldn't include all the guys that I wanted to. I desperately wanted to have Doug Walters and Stan McCabe on the list because I think they're tremendous cricketers. And Doug Walters, as far as average above replacement player is concerned, is really unlucky to miss out. He is streets ahead of all the other players who have so far missed out on the Hall of Fame, and he's got a, 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 a runs above average of, of way better than all, a, most, a lot of the other guys that, are, that have made it. So there are players that are tremendous cricketers that have missed out. And I feel bad for them. Like, I would like to have Neil Wagner in there. I would. I would love to have Neil Wagner in there. I would love to have... <laughs> so would Raj. <laughs> so, would, so would Raj. I would love to have a guy like Godfrey Evans in there because he was a tremendous, tremendous player. But I just can't fit them all into what is, a, is effectively nine teams, you know? Are there nine better batsmen than than, Russ, than Martin Crow batting at five? Maybe that's the tough part, you know. It, the the probably the the um, thing that we haven't touched on is how you evaluate uh, how how you actually you know you talked on you try to get as many or an even number of batters and bowlers. And there's a few all rounders and a few wicket keepers. How do you actually evaluate someone like 
Shakib, who's on that list, or an, an all-rounder Vittori mm. against a Martin Crow, yep. who's who's uh, you know Martin Crow did bowl a few uh, medium paces, and, and early on in his career was actually quite handy. But you know, h- how do they? How can you actually evaluate them? Because you know Shakib's numbers will be less than Martin Crow with the bat, but obviously better with the ball. Yeah, very very difficult, very difficult. Um, and I what without putting players in buckets. I tried to make sure that I had roughly, but not exactly, nine times 11 plus a little bit. So I, I tried to make room for eight or nine wicket keepers in the list. And it turns out that there are actually nine wicketkeeper bats that made the list anyway, without me having to contrive anything or kind of put players in buckets. I tried to make sure that there were enough all-rounders in the conversation that we could round out at about nine or 10 all-rounders. And it happened to work out that by... Excluding Shakib, we ended up with roughly nine all-rounders in the list. And the batters and bowlers kind of worked themselves out because the thresholds that I kind of set for myself tweaked a little bit and we kind of ended up with roughly the right number. But you're right, it's very difficult to compare the impact of Martin Crowe's career against the impact of Shakib Al-Hassan's career. You can compare Martin Crowe maybe a little bit more easily to Mark Waugh, but it's very difficult to compare him to Nathan Lyon. So I had to compare Martin Crowe to Mark Waugh and Cowdery and Langer and Walters and Greenwich and Taylor and Azaruddin and, and all of these other players, and where does he sit against them? And then try and go, okay, well, I've kind of got my list of batters. How am I going to slot that in against the list of bowlers? And then you kind of look at it and going, would I rather? So would I rather have Neil Harvey or would I rather have Michael Clark? Would I rather have... Show back in my side than Lance Gibbs. And if he's 43 and Gibbs is 44, am I happy with that? And that's kind of where I got to in terms of those those runs. Some of them look after themselves. A lot harder when you get sort of 40 through 80 because that's real hard because there's a lot of similarity there. Yeah, the, the only thing I'll add to that, and, and it speaks to Crow, I guess, is that that sort of feels that that's going to be a big part of, of how I feel as well. And, you know, for me, Crow was... At his peak, he was one of the best batsmen in the world, which was something that New Zealand cricket didn't have a lot of yep. at that time, and and that's why to me he you know he belongs there. And hey, we're not going to agree on everything, and that and that's the beauty of this list is this is effectively my list that I'm sharing with the world, our list that we're sharing with the world. Not not all of us are going to agree on every player and not all of us are going to agree on where they need to sit in the list or where they should sit. And as time goes on, this list is going to change. You know, Smith might go up, he might go down. Kane Williamson might go up, he might go down. A guy might emerge in the next five or six years, maybe like Cameron Green, who forces his way onto the list and someone else drops out. So it's an evolving thing that I'm, I'm, I'm loving the fact that I can contribute to this actively over the next 10, 20, 30 years of my life. And, and this is going to be a legacy that I, hopefully, I can leave to the world and we can all contribute together. Should we get into some of these names? Yeah, yes, do we, let's go. Do we want to have a little swish or? Yeah, let's have a swish. We'll have a swish and we'll come back with some names. So let the debate begin. Who are we going to start with, Baldy, one of these benchmark players? We're going to start with Bangladesh's Shakib Al-Hassan. 58 test matches and counting. Now 3,933 runs at an average of 39 and change. He's got 500s, 25 50s. A slight stat correction uh, off air to correct the number of wickets to 215 wickets at an average of 31 after his recent test exploits. And a strike rate of about 62. Reasonable test peak mostly in Bangladesh and also against New Zealand uh, in New Zealand, uh, where he kind of averages sort of between 40 and 50 with the bat and had a couple of good seasons with the ball, one one series where he took 18 wickets against Zimbabwe. But if you have a look, those are his three best test series statistically. So hasn't dominated great test opposition and hasn't dominated all across the world in terms of in terms of his career, but has put together a very consistent career for Bangladesh as one of their, probably their best cricketer of all time, really, without too much controversy there. Where does he sit for you, and, and what sort of comes to mind for you quickly, Binksy, in 30 seconds when you think about Shakib? 
yeah, so two things. He's carried that Bangladesh side, I think, and and joined the team as a pretty young man. So um, I think credit to him for being able to do that. Um, lead a, t- a test nation, not necessarily as captain, but certainly led them from a performance perspective. The second thing, unfortunately for him, is that controversy on and off the field. So um, has been in hot water, um, even recently, um, kicking stumps out of the ground. Um, uh, match fixing um, allegations um, against him as well so um, that's got to colour part of the judgement and I'm sure it will with some of the other players that we talk about as well but those are the things that would spring to mind for me with, with Shakib um, as well as he gives it a real tweak Yeah Baldy I'm, I'm kind of interested so I mean you just touched on how he's not you know you almost said oh he hasn't, he's not that great like he's kind of been good and you know I, I guess he's very good yeah he's very good and but you know, I guess what stands out to you here is probably the, the more interesting thing because I, when I look at Shakib Al-Hassan, I agree with what Binksy said. You know, he, he's had an enormous impact, I'm sure, on, on Bangladesh cricket, obviously not being there myself, not really knowing that fan base. I don't know how, you know, the high standing that he sits in in terms of a, a cricketer there, yep. obviously off-field stuff aside. But I, when I think about him, I don't think about him as the benchmark for great all-rounders, you know, and and I guess that's what we're discussing here, that he is one of the players, you know, if you are better than him as an all-rounder, then you're, you're saying the you're close to, to the top 100. What is it about him that, that has put him there for you? The one number that puts him there for me is the difference between batting average and bowling average. A pretty simple stat, plus minus. So his batting average minus his bowling average is roughly, he's changed it now because he's played a test since I put the stat together, but he's roughly plus 6.7, or sorry, plus 7.6 in tests. If we have a look at all time, Batting and bowling plus minus. You've got some great names right up the top there. So Sobers, Callis, Imran Khan, Keith Miller, Sean Pollock, all nine or ten plus. Then you've got Shakib. Now he's played a couple of tests since I since I came up with that stat, and his plus minus has changed a little bit. But as of about April this year, his plus minus was roughly about plus eight, plus eight and a half. Now that's ahead of Ben Stokes, that's ahead of Botham, that's ahead of Hashley, uh, ahead of Hadley, it's ahead of Ashwin, you know. So the difference between his batting and bowling, his value to the team in those two numbers alone is quite high. Um, you talked about Aubrey Faulkner in the preamble, his plus minus was plus 10 as well, admittedly in a very small sample size. So when I look at all-rounders, one of the things that we're going to look for is what is the difference between their batting and bowling average and could they make it as either of those two? A batting average of close to 40 just about makes it as a batter in, in most test cricket sides. An average as a spinner of 30 is a pretty good you know, finger spinner average for most test sides as well. So he would make it into most test sides as a batter or a bowler. He's not quite there in terms of the overall peak doesn't quite get there against the top sides and the longevity is there but he hasn't really excelled in either discipline to make him a lock for the Hall of Fame for me. I also feel like from from an eye test perspective if he had been more successful if they had won more matches yep. I think that if he was part of an Australian side part of something that that, that was winning at the time he mm-hmm. would he's, he's got some great stats I just want to pull a couple ones out it. of here so he's one of only three players to score 100 and take 10 wickets in a test match uh, the others being Imran Khan and, and your man Ian Botham. And obviously he was also the first cricketer, first all-rounder to be ranked number one in all three formats. Doesn't hold as much sway in this discussion, but mm. those are pretty pretty impressive sort of notable stats for him. Absolutely. And he has been a very impressive test cricketer in a, t- in a time and in a team where his teammates actually haven't made him all that much better. He's had to do the lion's share of both the holding role and the attacking role as a bowler. Not many players have been able to do that successfully. He's obviously had a lot of batting collapses that have affected his ability to score big runs. So, you know, he's only got 500s there, but he's got 2550s. Lots of times he will have been stranded when his team didn't quite give him enough batting around him for him to be able to go on and get big scores. So, you know, he's he's 200th in terms of, you know, 100 scored amongst the guys we looked at. So, you know, there are good things about Shakib. There are not so good things. And yes, we did mark him down, if you like, in terms of his courting controversy, both on and off the field over the course of his career. That goes to his legacy as a test cricketer. That number 7.69 or thereabouts is the benchmark I'm looking for for plus minus for all-rounders going forward. One name that I, when I was doing a bit of looking for for all-rounders and, and you know, when, when you sort of alerted me to your plus minus stat, one name that stood out 
very heavily for this benchmark spot to me was Ravi Jadeja. Yep. What? Why? You know, he's actually plus eleven. I couldn't. I couldn't believe his stats. Actually, they're unreal. You know, if if he averages twenty four with the ball, two hundred. You know, as many wickets as Shakib Al Hassan, two hundred and twenty one wickets. Just falls short on with um with your criteria for runs. For runs, right? but yep, I would it. suggest next test he might get there. He's nineteen eighty five, yep. I think, for for runs at thirty five. Yep, look for look for Ravi Jadeja to be replacing Shakib Al Hassan <laughs> on this list pretty damn soon because as soon as he gets the requisite number of test runs, he's in the conversation. And as you say, his plus minus is off the charts. It's really good, and he's got a lot of test cricket in him. He will go up this list pretty quickly, and he will be knocking on the door of that top one hundred before you know it. He'll be on the five year anniversary. Yeah, who's one hundred and two, Baldy? One hundred and two is no, he's not my man, but he's the greatest <laughs> of all time. Nathan Lyon, the goat. Uh, from Australia, a hundred and uh, exactly, I think exactly a hundred tests now, three hundred and ninety-nine. Do you remember there was a bit of a presentation in the? Oh, that's in his right. Last yes, game? that's right. There was too. I put that out of my mind. Three hundred ninety-nine test wickets, an average of thirty-two and change. Strike rate of fifty-eight. We'll ignore all his batting because his batting's unrelated to elephants. Series India in Australia, twenty-three wickets in the series at thirty-four, striking at fifty. Bangladesh in Bangladesh, went to Bangladesh, played two tests, took 22 wickets. That can't be right. Must have been more than two tests. 22 wickets at 14 with a strike rate of 36. Um, and then New Zealand in Australia, 2019-2020 series, just gone 20 wickets and three tests at an average of 17 and a strike rate of 34 and change. Um, actually, he did. He did back-to-back 10 for yeah, say, in, yeah. in Bangladesh in Bangladesh. Yeah. So um, really dominated in that particular tour. At his peak, tremendous. Lots of longevity to like. Pretty high strike rate, pretty high pretty high average as compared to other bowlers. To me, the key matchup here for, for Nathan Lyon was he versus Ashwin in that India series just gone in 2020-2021. Uh, in, in that was a telling moment in his career, how he stacks up against one of the other great finger spinners of all time, and Ashwin dominated him. From a, a statistics point of view, so the average there of, of 32 Strike rate of 60. To me, that feels it's not very, very sexy. Is it, what is that compared to? It's not particularly sexy. Right. No, it's good for a finger spinner. It's reasonably good for a finger spinner. It's not as good as Ashwin. It's not as good as the great bowlers of all time. But it's there or thereabouts. And that's what I think about when I think about Nathan Lyon. Yes, he's taken more wickets than any other finger spinner in Australia. Yes, he's on the threshold of 400 test wickets. You know, alongside with Habajan, those guys have got a lot of test wickets and still missed out. But his average and his strike rate is there or thereabouts, but it's not great. It's 106th of the guys that I considered for this for the um, Hall of Fame as far as bowlers are concerned. It's 80th in terms of strike rate. So it's not really making a strong case to bang down the door for Nathan Lyon to be in that top in that top echelon. So we talked about this early doors, and I'm going to be a big proponent of the eye test here. And I want to ask Lippy a question. Because um, I've looked at this a number of times, and I think you know you can make stats tell you whatever they want you to uh, say to a certain extent. Graham Swan, 255 wickets across 60 Test matches. Every time I saw him bowl, thought he was a fantastic off spinner and would eat Nathan Lyon for breakfast for me as an offie. Coming to you, Lippy, just in terms of that eye test, that doesn't feel right for me when you're you know you're missing some of those guys um, off the list Lance Gibbs um, is missing off the list as well um, further down the pecking order than than Nathan Lyon where does he sit all-time off spinners for you yeah it's really interesting because when I first uh, talked to Baldy about Lyon and and obviously I've I've read his uh, Baldy's write-up about Lyon so you which know, is extensive I, I, I go to into a lot of detail around Nathan Lyon and the case for and against yeah and I read it and I first thought was wow you're being really harsh on Lyon for one series and you just mentioned it again like one series against Ashwin and and obviously Lyon didn't come out on top there and but there, there were certainly situations in that series where Lyon was doing very very well and you know I, I don't know. I just felt like at that time, very harsh. But like diving into all of this and, yes, looking at Swan's figures and thinking about Swan's figures, I, I actually think Nathan Lyon, where you've got him, is about right. Like he's had an incredibly, incredibly impressive, impressive career for a finger spinner. You know, when you think about the, the other finger spinners that we're going to see on this list, certainly – Certainly near the top, there's going to be people who do all sorts of different things with the ball. Nathan Lyon is a traditional finger spinner, and those players have not had the incredible long careers where they've taken that remarkable number of, you know, one away from 400 test wickets, 
he's he's had a great career, but as you said, it's, it's just not good enough. Like it's it's been incredible. It's it's but close. It's, it's not absolutely amazing. And, yeah. and I feel like having him as your benchmark is is about right for me. For me, if he had dominated Ashwin in 2020, 2021, if he had dominated Ashwin in the way that Ashwin dominated Lyon, that could have put him over the top. That was really, to me, the bellwether series for his career. All things on the line, you're in a straight shootout with your opposite number, equal conditions, pretty much everything else the same. Ashwin dominated that series, Lyon didn't. And if that, and that to me, is the defining moment that, that signals his career and whether or not he makes the top 100. I won't shy away from the fact that I have a massive pro-bias for Ravi Ashwin. I think he's a tremendous, tremendous cricketer, and I probably overrate him in my list, and we'll get to that in a little while. But for me, good Nathan Lyon, tremendous cricketer. I've tried to write about his argument from, from both sides um, to try and make it fair, but he's just not quite there for me. Who's missed out by one place, Bordy? Mark Wall. Brother of? Dean Wall. No, the, the successful Mark Wall. Dean Wall had a, a pretty good first-class career. Mark Wall, a tremendous test career. 8,029 runs at an average of 41, highest score of 153 across his 128 test matches for Australia. Uh, 59 wickets at 41, so no slouch with the ball. Probably underused bowler at test level before he had a back injury and had to bowl sort of offies instead of some um, medium fast. Uh, a couple of three three really distinct peaks for Mark Waugh. 1993 in England, uh, average 61 in six tests there, 550 runs with a high score of 137. Uh, 97-98, the South Africa series in Australia averaged 70, 279 runs at an average of 70 in that series. And the 2001 tour of the Ashes in England only played the three matches, eight innings, uh, no, five matches, eight innings, 430 runs at an average of 86. So went out on a bit of a high there in that 2001 series. The only player really in this list to miss out having scored 8,000-plus runs. And that, to me, is the benchmark there for for Test cricketers. 8,000 runs at an average of 40-plus gets you in the conversation. Yeah, I had a look at a a few of his highlights and and read up a little bit about him today. I guess if this was more focused around the white ball stuff, or particularly one-day cricket, I feel like he he probably makes the list. He was a very, very good one-day cricketer. And he he cemented himself in this Test side without kind of taking the world by storm. And I guess if you if you have a look at the, the people who surrounded them within that side, he kind of the glare kinda of, or the shine kind of gets taken off of him because of the people who surrounded him. But I think I think you're pretty pretty close there to, in terms of where that benchmark is. I agree with that. The thing that surprises me there is um really didn't make Massive scores, top score of 153 in in Test match cricket. So, says to me that you know he didn't score those daddy hundreds that you you talk about. Um, And I I guess that's probably his career in a microcosm, isn't it? You you remember him for those really flashy um, 80s and 90s, and and you know looking very very fluent. And that's the problem with Mark War, I think, for a lot of people who grew up watching him play. And I think it's the same for any cricketer who is classy and stylish. And, and almost makes it seem effortless when they're on song. And certainly when Mark Wall was on song and driving through the covers and flicking the ball off his legs, it looked like, one, he didn't care what the bowler was doing. He'd just smash it wherever he wanted. Um, but when it didn't work, that's when the critics started to pile into him because he made it look so effortless when he was on song. When he got 30 and got out, that's when the critics started to really pile on Mark Wall. So that classiness worked both for and against him. And we'll see that a few more times in the top 100 when we get to other players where their classiness actually got them more critics than a grittier player like Steve Wall because they looked so good when they were on song and then they'd snick off for 30 and, you know, you'd be like, well, he doesn't care, he's not trying hard enough. Definitely was trying Mark Wall. But the fact that he was so classy means that occasionally he would get more critics than he should have. I guess to, to sort of give some statistical significance to what you're saying is that that uh, 20 hundreds is actually going to cut a lot of people out um, mm. who are below him, who, who haven't scored 20 international hundreds. And that average for me doesn't quite match up to the number of hundreds he's got. And it's illustrated by the fact he got seven golden ducks during mm. the course of his, his career. I think he's fourth or fifth 
on on that list of of golden ducks and the, the people above him are like Murali Dharan and, and stuff like that. Tailenders, right? Yeah. And have a look at the number of 50s he's got. 47 half centuries and only 20 hundreds. So he's got his top 15 in terms of half centuries, Mark Wall, but he couldn't convert those to more and more hundreds. If he had five or six more hundreds, he'd definitely be in the list and we'd be talking about him 80, 80 to 70, I reckon. Can I ask a question where you've considered the, uh, you know, the ancillary components? So Mark Wall... I reckon he's one of the best slip catchers um, that I've seen in test cricket. Um, fantastic fielder in general, actually. Very yep. athletic. Did you factor that in? Because I think when you've got a top-order batsman that doesn't drop a lot of catches... Um, Worth that, a bit more to you? Well, you know, I don't know what your stats would tell you. The Binksy eye test would, <laughs> would say somewhere between five and seven runs on an average for a guy that, you know, is, is an 80%er in the slips versus someone who's a 50%er. Yep, absolutely. The catches, certainly the number of catches, you have a look at that, 181 catches and only 128 matches certainly stacks up pretty well and, and makes your point. He had to stand on his, on his batting alone. I think if he had made it, the fact that he was also a terrific field probably would have put him ahead of lethargic or average fielders, but he had to make it on his batting alone and he didn't quite. I would have felt uncomfortable putting him ahead of a couple of other cricketers who have a superior batting record but aren't quite as good a fielders. But his fielding would have made a difference when comparing like for like with another guy with a similar record for sure. Last last thing on war, I, when, you know, Raj mentioned this before, that average 41 doesn't really stack up and I know there are a, a few reasons, but how tough was it, I guess, to to put him ahead of a number of players who averaged 45 plus, some obviously in, in bigger eras. We've mentioned yep. someone like Martin Crow who... Yep. Who averaged, you know, Martin Crow almost has, tw- uh, I think he has seventeen test hundreds and an average of forty six or so. Yeah. yeah. How how tough was it to actually, you know, put that longevity ahead of someone like Crow or or, or some of those earlier players? Real real tough. Uh, it's re- there are a few guys that you're going to drill me on as soon as we get into the kind of hundred to ninety range where they make it based on one or two stats alone, and you have to kind of look at them and go. 8,000 test runs is a big milestone to get to and still to miss out, right? 400 test wickets is a big milestone to get to and still to miss out. He misses out because he didn't get them at 46. If he had got 8,000 runs at 46, 47, he would have definitely been in the list. If Crow had maybe 500 to 600 more runs at his average, he would have been right there in contention. So you've got to com- you've got to combine those things. If Crow had three more hundreds, maybe he would have been in that same conversation as well. This this 80 to 110 is so, so hard because there are so many players who make a very similar case and, and those guys are really unfortunate to miss out. Paul, it's been awesome to talk through um, the preamble to this and the three guys um, that have missed out. For those of you listening at home, we're going to start our delve into the club, I think it's called. The club, yep. Um, on the next episode. Well, Sponsored we'll be, not by Canadian club, but somebody else. No, and we'll be talking about those cricketers between um, 100... Um, and 96 on that list Um, we hope you've enjoyed it we do welcome some comments particularly if you want to give us some alternative stats that we can consider I I can't say we're going to incorporate them um, into the algorithm at this stage um, because Baldy's computer might run out of RAM Um, but we we will obviously factor that into some of our conversation and our debates Um, but look just fantastic food for thought really when you look at that list and some of the guys that have missed out um, excited to see who's gonna um, who's gonna come. So please stay tuned to the Top Order podcast. These episodes will hit your feed um, in addition to our regular programming. So you will still see news, views, interviews, and this week in cricket um, on future Top Order podcasts. If you do want to read Baldy's write up as well, the toporderpodcast.com where you can see a little bit more about uh, Baldy's or the Top Orders 100 Greatest Men's Cricketers of All Time. But for not na- for tonight's Good night and it's God bless. See you later.